Hello and welcome to the weekly Eye-Catching Words podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've listened before, welcome back. This week's episode contains a satire on how political parties might restore strong and competent leadership, a plea as to how ordinary people can take the good fight back to the front line of hate, and recaps the great woke coffee affair which hit the streets of Connecticut recently. There is also a very personal poetic tribute to the city of my birth. After the dodo. News that scientists are aiming to bring back the long-deceased dodo by crossing its DNA with that of a Nicobar pigeon in a Jurassic Park-style revival of long-extinct animals has been met with interest in the senior echelons of the Conservative Party. The Tories' fortunes have sunk so low that they have decided to invest all their remaining funds in a desperate attempt to create a new lab-grown Winston Churchill. Although this would be a massive scientific undertaking, it was felt to be more desirable and more practical than trying to revive the fortunes of any recent Tory Prime Ministers. Theresa May would not consent to being brought back. A revived Boris Johnson is just too scary to countenance. And apparently the technology does not exist to bring back Liz Trust with a functioning brain, as she did not have one in the first place. The idea does have other parties running scared, however, and it is rumoured that Keir Starmer is seriously considering a crowdfunding approach to reviving the great post-war Labour Prime Minister, Clement Attlee, while the Lib Dems are looking at a Lloyd George option. Although, given their lack of resources, it is believed they would have to settle for an ageing celebrity lookalike rather than the genetically engineered real deal. Most worrying, however, is the news that Tony Blair and David Cameron have recently met to consider pooling their genes with a view to creating a completely new breed of statesman called a Cameron Blair. The idea of this Frankensteinian creation has been met with dismay in ethical circles, since it raises the spectre of unleashing hitherto unknown political creatures onto the Westminster landscape. It's one thing to bring back historical figures for a second chance on the Westminster stage said the Speaker of the House of Commons, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, but quite another to create genetically modified, crossed-bench animals whose destructive powers would be unknown. Combining the smooth bullshit of Blair with the austerity instincts and bad judgment of Cameron could be a disaster for British democracy. Sorry, another disaster for British democracy. Nigel Farage, meanwhile, has denied speculation that he is in fact not human at all, but was created some years ago from the genes of an unspecified evil figure in history. Although facial recognition software has apparently identified one potential match, once digitally de-haired, with the notorious Grigory Rasputin. Complete nonsense, said Farage. Rasputin was a fantasist who managed to convince gullible people to do his bidding, ruined an entire once powerful country, forced it into years of disruption, and was notoriously difficult to get rid of. Nothing like me at all. When you just woke up and didn't smell the coffee. 
One of the more stunning acts of lunacy from the frothy Trumpite Republican caucus in America occurred last week when a new cafe in a small town in Connecticut was the subject of angry tirades and even a boycott because it named itself Woke. The cafe owner, who by her own admission is far removed from the front line of the culture war, was simply suggesting that a cup of coffee was a good way to start the day. But certain local residents decided it was an attempt to brainwash the local population into, well, who knows what. I doubt most of them could even define what woke is, or is supposed to be, or why it makes the right-wingers in America so angry. One American TV station, however, nailed it quite nicely, and in my view, quite positively. There was a double irony emerging from this affair. The first is that the small minds who initiated the controversy were actually very few in number, and as a result of the news coverage, the place has been full every day and patronised by sympathisers who want to show that the idiots are in a minority. The other reason the place is full is because the food is apparently very good and the atmosphere really nice. But the other piece of irony is that the cafe owner is a Mexican immigrant who came to the States legally, worked hard, paid her taxes, and then set up herself in business. Everything she has done has been in the spirit of the American dream, although her background no doubt adds ire to the critics, who are unaware of her political naivety, and almost certainly haven't tried the egg muffins and coffee she serves. I live in the Surrey town of Woking in England, and am strongly minded to suggest we should enter into a town-twinning arrangement with Coventry, Connecticut, on the grounds that Woke is a good thing, whether it's the name of the place where you live or your local cafe. That might see plain loads of Trump supporters coming over here to shout at us through our town gates, but I for one would be very happy to have a discussion with them as to why they think being aware of discrimination is a bad thing and how they might like to change their minds. Love with Nuts In May 2022, I watched a panel discussion at the Hay Festival involving Elif Shafak, A.C. Grayling and Simon Sharma, with the ostensible title, Is Global Collaboration to Save the World Possible? As with most things Hay, the billing is less important than where the panel and the audience take the discussion. Sharma painted a vivid picture of how, from the late 1980s onwards, we've seen the systematic rise of the right-wing demagogues across Europe and America, and how they've weaponised hate for political ends. Shafiq made an impassioned and idealistic plea for all citizens to take up the fight against hatred, ignorance and apathy, and Grayling held up a candle of hope, pointing to how time and time again over thousands of years of history, mankind had come back from darkness and moved into the light, despite the challenges. Underlying this debate was the recognition that information, wisdom and knowledge are different things. Information is moving with enormous speed thanks to digital technology, but wisdom and knowledge are lagging. This became a talking point in itself. Information was supposed to deliver us from hate and violence, when in fact it has had the opposite effect. So afterwards I wrote in my journal that the big takeaway for me was this question. How does love which by its very nature is free-flowing and often spontaneous, stand up to and overcome hate, 
when it is systematically organised and intent on destruction? Because that seems to me to be the big question. In this country, I can demonstrate against hate. I can speak against hate. I can speak to you like I am speaking now. There are a few out there, such as the Bravermans and the Rams, who would like to take that right away. But so far, we've managed to hang on to a vestige of free speech, unlike many countries such as Russia, Turkey and Iran, where people with voices like yours and mine are oppressed, ridiculed and even murdered. For me, Grayling encapsulated the issue when he said, and I paraphrase, the audience doesn't need to be persuaded, but it does need to go out and persuade those who want to stay in a state of ignorance or speak hate. But in my view, it can't afford to do that passively. Love can't win just by being love. Reason can't win just by being reasonable. Love has to be organised and has to have the nuts to fight, to argue and demand while still being love and not turning into something else. There are many philosophies in history that teach love, but also self-defence. These, in my view, need to be looked at, so we can equip people with a renewed sense of purpose and self-confidence when it comes to standing up to hate. Whatever turbulent times lie ahead, we can at least describe what it means to lead a good and purposeful life and stand up for what is right. In the meantime, educate yourself. If there is one thing we can all do, it is that. Not to accept the narrative we're being given, but to find the alternatives. Because we are going through a period in history that desperately needs alternatives. A love letter to London. The London Society organises an annual competition called A Love Letter to London, which is an invitation to join in the celebration of one of the world's great cities by putting down in words the things that move you about it. The winners will be announced later this month, although I have no expectation of being successful. But here is the entry I submitted in December, a very personal account of some of the things London has meant to me. As a child, I heard your boat horn's toot on New Year's Eve, listening and shivering with my mother high above Galleon's reach. As a boy, I was astonished by the Dome of St Paul's, and even more astonished that my father, a stern, far-left-leaning man, bought me a copy of the New Testament in the cathedral shop. London, you bring out the strangest things in the most inexplicable of people. As a very young man, with a five-shilling Red Rover, I had ventured with friends from Whitehall to Camden, via that technological miracle of yours, the post office tower. I was schooled opposite the walls of Greenwich Park and thrown out of the flower gardens for playing football. I took one of your buses to New Cross Hospital with my grandfather's broken hearing aid, and later went to Goldsmiths College just along the road although even there your pavements had no gold. You'd think, wouldn't you? I have lunched with a notorious armed robber in a broccoli pub for the best of academic reasons, although we still got drunk. Lived and worked with comedians of fame in Blackheath and Lambeth, although none of us were well known then. I still await my 15 minutes of fame. 
I have walked to your streets with friends and family who have come from furthest Bradford and Brighton, British Columbia and distant Sydney. I, the dyed-in-the-vegan-wool South Londoner, married a girl from way up north in Barnet. Talk about Romeo and Juliet, we even had a balcony scene in Crouch End. You still astonish me. Barely a week goes by when I don't venture into your heart, walking the south bank like a gape-mouthed tourist in my own city. Although I am now technically an expat living in Surrey, I can still be found trespassing the cobbles in Cardinal Cap Alley. Meeting brothers or sisters on your bridges and in your gardens, and stalking the city margins with sugs singing Norton Folgate in my ears. I have been found with a friend after a bar too many watching floating robot jellyfish in the turbine hall, and have known far too many of your pubs and their beer and whiskey. Delightfully, I still get lost in my exploring, but I'd rather be lost with you than found elsewhere. I could write 10,000 lines and still write more about you. The older I get, the more you exhaust me, but you are never exhausted. You've given me so much, laid so much at my door. Every memory I have of you is like a hand holding in the darkness that comes before dawn or just after dusk. As your river sounds, slap my ears and as my ageing eyes adjust. That's all for this week. Just a little parting plug, which is to big up my new website, which you will find at www.com eyecatchingwords.blog This is very much a work in progress like this podcast, so bear with me as we overcome the inevitable teething troubles and polish the content, which now includes selected transcripts from these podcasts. You can also do me a big favour and share the link to this site as widely as possible. Have a great week, and hear me again next Sunday evening on the Eye Catching Words podcast. <laughs>